startling reality. This gospel that is so clearly explained, this gospel that is so clearly applied and accompanied with power finds meager and mixed results in the gospel of Mark. Jesus preaches to the crowds and they they flock to him. They gather from all over Israel and beyond, but it seems that they have come to Jesus for, for tainted reasons. They come not for everlasting salvation, but for their temporal needs. They're hungry, so they come to him to get their bellies filled. They come for healing of sickness. And we can even look at Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers. They come, but they do not eagerly accept the word preach. Rather, they are worried and distressed about what Jesus is doing, the controversy that he is creating, and they say, he is out of his mind. And the trained interpreters of Scripture, the pastors of Israel, watch and observe Jesus. But even with these men who are dedicated to the word of God, he doesn't find a welcome response. Instead, the men of the word plot Jesus' death and spread this slanderous message. He is possessed by Beelzebul. If we cast our eyes forward in the story that Mark tells us, we will find that the adoring crowds will no longer fawn over Jesus like they do in the beginning chapters, but they will soon cry out, crucify him. And we'll even find that even among the twelve, that they are not immune from these troubling mixed results. We know about Judas Iscariot, how he will bargain away the Lord Jesus Christ for some pieces of silver. What makes this reality all the more startling is that this people we meet in the Gospel of Mark, this people who had witnessed the ministry of Jesus, who observed the ministry of Jesus, who heard his powerful preaching, were the covenant people of God. These were the people of God. Jesus was not ministering to atheists or agnostics who had nothing to do with God, but to a people who had deeply internalized the Scriptures. These were a people who had Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, stashed away in their back pocket. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. They were a people who were looking for the arrival of God. They were looking for the kingdom of God. They had Isaiah 40, verse 9, in their minds and on their hearts. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. But in the gospel of Mark, the messenger with beautiful feet arrives. The long-awaited herald appears, and he preaches to one and all, and he says, your God reigns. And he preaches to Israel, behold your God. He has returned to Israel. What does Israel do with the messenger with beautiful feet? What do they do with this message? Your God reigns. Behold your God. They do not recognize him. They do not obey his voice. They refuse him, they reject him, and ultimately they will kill him. There is a tension in the gospel of Mark. The gospel is clearly proclaimed, and it is clearly rejected. And we can bring this tension into our own present context. We, as the church, as the people of God, have been entrusted with the gospel, the best news of all, the news about Jesus Christ and what God has done through and in Jesus Christ. 
And this is no ordinary message that we have been entrusted with. Paul says this about the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It is the power of a God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it is this message of the gospel that Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, that it cannot be bound. And it is a message that is full of saving mercy and restoring righteousness. But there's a tension. When we look at our own world, when we stop and assess our own ministries, when we assess our own city, our own church, we find at best mixed results. And Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 land freshly upon us in the midst of this tension. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And here is the tension. The gospel clearly preached. The gospel clearly rejected. We see this tension laced throughout the gospel of Mark. Gospel clearly preached. Gospel clearly rejected. We see it in our own lives. We inhabit this tension today. Gospel clearly preached. Gospel clearly rejected. So with this tension, we're struck with questions. What does this tension say about humanity? What does this tension say about the kingdom of God? And ultimately, what does this tension tell us about who our God is and what he is like? And we can make this intensely personal. How are we to live in the midst of this tension? How are we to minister the word of God in the midst of this tension? How are we to practice faith and repentance in the midst of this tension? In Mark chapter 4, we get an answer to all of these questions. But this is a poor way to phrase it. For the Lord Jesus' answer does not come in the, the form of nice and neat definitions that you can find in the dictionary. Rather, his answer comes in the form of a parable. Jesus' answer does not alleviate the tension. Here's this little nugget. Take it and all your problems are going to be solved. Rather, Jesus' purpose in giving us parables is to, to shape our posture and change our perception as we navigate this present tension that we find ourselves in as the kingdom of God has arrived. And so our text begins in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Look there with me. And again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. So we've established this fact so far in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is a, a preacher. That's his mission. This is the work that he is dedicated to, that he is devoted to. He will not turn aside from preaching. This is the work that the Spirit has fit him for. But the interesting, interesting thing about Mark's Gospel is that we rarely hear the preaching of Jesus. In the first three chapters, we have heard little snippets here and little snippets there, a line here and a line there. And so when we come to chapter 4, we should pay careful attention, for here we get our first extended exposure to the preaching ministry of Jesus, which he is devoted to. And from chapter 4, a simple point emerges. 
Integral to Jesus' preaching of the kingdom of God is his use of parables. When Mark finally places one of Jesus' sermons into our hands, what do we get? Well, we get four parables and a short explanation of what these parables are up to. In fact, we can go further. We can argue this morning that parables were not only integral to Jesus' preaching, but they were the most common way Jesus announced the arrival of God's kingdom. This was the mode of Jesus' preaching. If you look to the end of chapter 4, Mark records in verses 33 and 34 this. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So parables are integral to the ministry of Jesus. And he is explaining, he's announcing the arrival of God's kingdom through parables. So we have to ask this morning, what is a parable? Well, from just a cursory reading of our text this morning, a few characteristics stand out about parables. A parable often comes in the form of a terse, brief story. And we see this in chapter 4. We hear of a man who scatters seed on the ground who then receives a harvest. There's also an element of tangibility throughout the parables that Jesus uses. These images that Jesus uses in our text would have been intelligible to his audience. Farming, soil, seed, harvest, a sower. And on the whole, parables are rather simple. So at a very basic level, we can say this morning, a parable is a rhetorical device used by Jesus in his preaching. But this is where the issue gets more complicated. For if Jesus were subjected to a seminary preaching lab and graded there, what would his marks be? Well, from experiencing it myself, I believe you would have gotten poor marks. Why? Why would Jesus get poor marks in a seminary preaching lab? Well, his rhetoric, his illustrations, his stories, his, his parables often leave people more confused than when they, when they started. After Jesus tells the parable of the sower, we, we go down to verse 10 and we read this. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And Jesus says in verse 13 to his disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? And the point is rather plain here. The disciples aren't getting it. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They haven't pierced the parable. And so we have to say in light of verses 10 and 13 that a parable is not simply a sermon illustration or a teaching tool. It is not simply an earthly story with a heavenly message. Parables do not just simply talk about the kingdom of God. And this is the big point. Parables are in themselves an expression of the kingdom of God. Parables are in themselves an enactment of the kingdom of God. So what does this mean? Parables are in themselves an expression and enactment of the kingdom of God. We could illustrate this. If I gave you this morning the script of Shakespeare's Hamlet, you could do a lot of things with the script of Shakespeare's Hamlet. You could read it carefully. You could even, if you were zealous, memorize the whole script. You would know the characters, the plot, the actions. You could know this play inside and out. 
But the question is this. After reading the script, after memorizing the script, after knowing the characters, after knowing the plot line, do you really know Shakespeare? Do you really know the Hamlet? And the answer has to be no. Why? Because a play can only really be known as it was meant to be known. And how is a play meant to be known? A play is meant to be known in the theater. You can never truly know Shakespeare's Hamlet unless you sit down in the theater with hundreds of others and watch and listen and smell and feel the embodiment, the enactment of the play before you. Then and only then do you understand Shakespeare's Hamlet. And in the same way, Jesus' parables are not just the script of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God in action. They're not just information about the kingdom of God, but an embodiment of the saving reign of God. And in this parable, the audience in chapter 4, the crowds, Jesus' disciples, and even Jesus' opponents taste the reign of God in these parables. And the truth for us this morning is that we, as we enter into this text, into this parable, we ourselves will actually taste the reign of God. We're not just getting information, but we're actually it's experiencing. And from this vantage point, we can begin to look at Jesus' parable piece by piece. And I want to draw out three pieces of this parable and then make applications to ourselves about this tension that we live in. And the first piece of this parable is the sower. The parable centers around a specific individual. Chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And the rest of the parable chronicles the sower's work. He sows with great abandon. He sows wherever his feet take him, whether that be hard, rocky, or thorny, or good soil. But we have to ask. Who is this sower we meet in chapter 4? Who is this sower that Jesus is talking about? Now, this parable is not just about any old preacher, and it should not be applied to any old preacher. But within the context of Mark, we learn the specific identity of this sower. In Jesus' interpretation of the parable in verse 14, he says this, The sower sows the words. This phrase, the sower sows the word, immediately keys us into the identity of the sower. We have heard this language before if we've been carefully listening to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2, verse 2, Mark records, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And we'll hear this language again. At the end of chapter 4, Mark says this in verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. So who is this sower that Jesus preaches about? Well, he is preaching about himself. And this parable helps us make sense of Jesus' ministry. Preaching is not an incidental component to Jesus' ministry in the kingdom of God. Rather, he is like a sower prodigally casting the message of the gospel wherever he goes. Whether that be in town or by the sea or in the synagogue. Whether it be to those who are friendly or skeptical or even downright hostile. But there's more for us here. Preaching consumes Jesus' ministry for good reason. Why? 
Because preaching is the divinely ordained means through which the kingdom of God is planted in this world. Sowing or preaching is the mode by which the kingdom comes. Jesus is bringing the kingdom and he's bringing it through the preaching of the word. And it's here we're left with a staggering claim about who Jesus is, a Christological claim. The sower we have established is not just any preacher of the gospel, but it's Jesus himself. And then we established a second fact. Preaching is the divinely ordained means through which the kingdom of God is planted in this world. The kingdom comes through preaching. And so we can say this when we couple these statements together. The kingdom of God can only be experienced through the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of Jesus alone. So how does this parable begin to shape our posture and change our perceptions as we navigate this tension? Well, this Christological claim, the kingdom of God can only be experienced through the preaching of Jesus, applies directly to us. We cannot experience the kingdom of God except through the preaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The preaching of Jesus is the entry point into the kingdom and is the very means through which we are engrafted into the kingdom and share in the blessedness of that kingdom. And there is encouragement for our hearts this morning in this text. It's this. The Jesus who preached in Mark chapter 4 still exercises his ministry of preaching today. The sower in chapter 4 is yet faithfully doing his work of planting. And this is, changes the way we navigate this tension right now because the hope of the kingdom does not lie in any personality or any preacher. We know preachers, they come and they go, personalities rise and fall, but the church is built upon one preacher. It is built upon one solid pulpit ministry, that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his sowing, his preaching. In Revelation chapter 1, John is ushered into this great scene. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, John experiences the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. And John describes Jesus' appearance in a very unique, distinctive way. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says this. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What is John talking about? What is Jesus yet doing in his heavenly reign? What is Jesus doing right now? Well, he is extending the kingdom of his father through the preaching of the word. John says, from his mouth proceeds a sharp sword, which is the word of God. And we can ask ourselves, what gives the pulpit its strength in its age? What gives us hope in this age that the kingdom of God will expand and grow? Well, it's simple. The sower who continues his ministry of sowing. And Jesus yet today still casts his seed all over. And the good news for us today is the kingdom can yet be experienced. Why? Because Jesus is still preaching. This brings us to another element of the parable, the seed. In order for there to be a harvest, the sower must sow something, and that something that he must sow must be seed. It is from the seed which the plant grows and ultimately where the harvest full of fruit comes. And if the, if the sower does not plant seed, he's not going to have a plant, and ultimately he will not have a harvest. He won't have any fruit. 
And we see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is the faithful planter of God's kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 14, the sower sows the word. The seed that needs to be planted in Jesus' ministry in order to gain a harvest is the word of the kingdom, the word of the gospel, the word of God. And Jesus is careful to cast this seed wherever he travels. He is always preaching the word. Jesus' selection of this particular metaphor is powerful, and it's not by mistake. A seed. All cultures, even in Jesus' day, know the powerful germinal force of a seed. Growing crops isn't like baking cookies. When you bake cookies, you take one ingredient and then you take another and another and you mix them together. Then you put them in the oven and out you pull something. You've created something. You've mixed up something. But planting is not a creative work. It's not a mixing work. One simply takes the seed and planting and pushes it down into the earth. And what happens? A plant will pop out. The seed itself carries the power of life. So how does this parable, how does this seed begin to shape our posture and change our perceptions as we navigate this this tension? Well, we can say this. All that is needed for the growth and expansion of the kingdom of God is the word of the kingdom, the gospel of Christ Jesus, the word of God. So as we think upon this, what does this mean for us? What does this make us? Well, it means that we are a a word-desperate people. We need the word of God. We are a a needy, dependent people on the seed. The kingdom of God sprouts and grows not through the mixtures and creative powers of humanity. Rather, there is an inbuilt germinal power of the word of God. This is why Jesus can say that his kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom doesn't spread through war or politics or diplomacy or any other creative acts by which we might participate in, but through the efficacy of the word of God and the word of God alone. It's interesting when you go back to Isaiah, the same message is preached and understood. When Isaiah addressed the people that he was ministering to and he was talking about the coming of Jesus, the arrival of God's kingdom, He pointed his people directly to the efficacy of the word of God. Isaiah explains in chapter 40 of his book, the kingdom will come not through the power of man, through the ability of man, but through the word of God and the word of God alone. Isaiah preaches to us this morning. He changes our posture. He says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And Isaiah is encapsulating the meaning of the seed. The kingdom will grow through the word of God. This brings us to the third element of the parable, the soils. There is a a context for the ministry of Jesus And this context is explained through four different soils. And a striking fact emerges as we examine these soils. The sower has largely come to a farmland that is hostile to farming. Three-fourths of the soils are not receptive to his planting. The hard ground cannot take seed. The rocky ground cannot support life. The thorny patch chokes out, aggressively chokes out the word, the seed. And when we look at the yield of the harvest... We're not naive. 
we understand the results and why they happen. Ground not suited and prepared for farming will always yield a terrible harvest. And this finds direct correlation to the ministry of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Mark. We quickly understand that Jesus' ministry largely takes place in a land that is hostile to gospel ministry. He has come to a people whose hearts are, are bent out of shape and unreceptive to the word of God. They won't listen. They won't heed. Isaiah chapter 1 applies well to Jesus' generation. Isaiah speaks of his own generation and prophetically of Jesus' time. And he says, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What Isaiah is saying here in chapter 1 is that an ox has better sense than Israel. A donkey has better sense than Israel. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And when we look for the yield of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark, it's not surprising that Jesus is met with rejection, and often his word is despised and cast aside. Isaiah 1 comes to fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. But we must realize, as we look into this parable, that Jesus' preaching actually does something to Israel. And if we examine our own hearts this morning, we will realize that Jesus' preaching actually does something to us this morning. We're not just getting information about the kingdom, but this is kingdom embodied, kingdom in our midst. And as Jesus sows the word of God into all of Israel, his preaching ministry quickly reveals what's going on inside the hearts of Israel. The seed sown on the hard ground confirms that it's what? Hard ground. The seed sown on rocky soil confirms that it is unsuitable to farming. The seed thrown among the bushes, among the thorns, reveals that it will not yield a harvest. And this is manifested throughout the pages of Mark. The word of the gospel is sown among the scribes. Jesus preaches the word to these men. What do they do with the words? They refuse it. And it reveals that the soils of their heart are hard and unreceptive. So chapter 4, verse 14 happens. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And we could go on tracing out the different soils with the characters we find within Mark. But this point emerges. What you do with the word of Jesus reveals who you truly are. And this morning we are encountering the kingdom of God in the preaching of the word. This morning is not a neutral event, but an event where the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing what is going on inside of us. What you do with the word of Jesus this morning reveals who you truly are. The word is being preached. The seed is being scattered. And if it falls upon your head but does not land in your heart, what does that reveal about you? Well, it means that you're hard soil. If you do not hold fast to the word in tribulation, what does this reveal about you? Well, it reveals that you're rocky soil. If you are distracted from the word of God by the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world, what does that reveal about you? thorny ground. And we must recognize that there is indeed a deeper work going on in Jesus' ministry. 
Jesus does not just come as a savior, but also as a divine judge. He does not just reveal what is in men's hearts, but he also judges men for what is in their hearts. Jesus answers in verse 12. He explains why he speaks in parables. He quotes Isaiah. And this is a hard word to receive. He says, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus speaks in parables, not because of their illustrative qualities, but because they are a form of God's just judgment on Israel for their hard and unrepentant hearts. Isaiah said, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. And what does a people like that deserve from God? Well, they deserve further confusion. They deserve further ignorance. And Jesus is furthering that judgment within his ministry. Jesus' parables further harden the hardened heart. The truth is, even when it seems like the preaching of the word is not doing something, we look at people as we preach the word and we wonder what's going on. Jesus assures us something is always happening. The word is always doing a work. It is either saving someone or it's judging them. If we stopped here, this would be a rather pessimistic sermon. Three bad soils, no harvest from these soils. But by the grace of God, there is another soil. Chapter 4, verse 8. Look there with me. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain. Growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and a a hundred-fold. And who are these? What's going on here? Jesus explains in chapter 4, verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. And this should encourage us this morning after looking at the, the previous three soils. Throughout our text, throughout these verses, Jesus is calling for people to hear. In verse 3, he commands his audience. He says, listen, take note, hear what I'm saying, you need this. And in verse 9, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we find good news in the fourth soil. The preaching of the gospel finds a reception. The seed of God's kingdom finds good soil. And by the grace of God, we see that there is a plentiful harvest. But again, we can ask, how does this parable shape our posture, our perception as we navigate this tension that we're in? We can say this. The good soil is a testament to the necessity of God's grace. Those who hear the gospel, those who receive the gospel, those who bear fruit in accordance with the gospel... Do not do so because of their own wisdom or insight or previous knowledge. No, this reception is all due to the mighty grace of God. The good soil preaches the necessity of God's grace. And Jesus preaches this message of grace in verse 11. He says to his disciples, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom. The disciples gain insight into the kingdom. They have a share in the gospel. They get into Jesus. They get Christ. How? To you has been given the secret of the kingdom by the gift of God. How can we illustrate this principle this morning? How can we make sense of this? 
Matthew in his gospel beautifully illustrates this principle found in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom. When Jesus and his disciples in the gospel of Matthew arrive in Caesarea Philippi, Peter finally starts to get the gospel. He pierces the identity of Jesus, and in this great scene, he confesses. There's this mountaintop experience. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got it. But we can ask, how did Peter get there? Was it by his shrewd insight? Was it by his great wisdom? Was it by his previous knowledge? No, Jesus answers, it was by grace and grace alone. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We gain the kingdom, understanding of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, by God's grace. And our blessed hope in this age and the age to come is the God who abundantly gives grace to those who don't deserve it. The good soil takes the word of God by grace. The good soil receives the word of God by grace. The good soil bears abundant fruit by grace. As we place ourselves in this parable, it is the same for us. Jesus says to us, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We receive the kingdom this morning by grace. And the good news is that the sower has faithfully sowed his word even this morning and it is landing in hearts. And we have reassuring news. Our God is a God of grace. And now, you might, and now may you by the, the very grace of God take this word, receive this word, bear fruit in accordance with this word by the grace of our God. And may it be revealed this morning as Jesus is doing his, his work in preaching, that you are indeed good soil by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in your word this morning. We desire to take it, receive it, and bear fruit in accordance with it. We want to live by your word. And we have great hope this morning. You, O oh God, are the giver of grace. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom. And, O oh Father, we pray, work in our midst. Work in our midst this morning. We need your blessed work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.